The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 26th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Okay, come with me too as we cut to November 5th, 2018. Candidate Ted Fermunda is trailing by four points in the poll in his race for Congress. He is trailing to the Democrat. He's a Republican. Fermunda's campaign manager approaches the candidate. Ted, it's not looking great. Well, Billy, is there anything we could do? Well, we think there is, but it's a little risky. Billy, this district's gone Republican the last 12 elections, and I don't want to be the one to lose it. Okay, Ted, here's what I think we got to do to pull it out. You're going to have to body slam a reporter. That's that's a big step, Billy. I know it is, but we focus group this, and it really depends on which reporter. It's got to be someone with a national outlet. Steve Kornacki seems like a guy I could easily lift. I know, I know, we were thinking that too, but people tend to like this Steve Kornacki fella, and he's really more wiry than you thought. Well, how about Dana Bash? I could lift her. I know you can, Ted, I know you can. But for some reason, the focus group says it's better to body slam a male reporter than a woman. Also, they say print is better than TV, all things being equal. Because with TV, they'll play the footage over and over, and that way it'll become real and not abstract. All right, all right. Let's talk about someone who we can body slam to close this gap. How about Glenn Thrush? Seldom leaves Washington. Okay, Dave Weigel. But you guys both love King Crimson so much. Uh, Michael Barbaro. There's an idea, and you know he'd keep the tape rolling. But he does have a pretty big following. All right, how about, uh, how about Ezra Klein? Hmm. Named Ezra. Wears glasses. That's all good. But I feel like he might work out. Yeah, that's true. How about Harry Enten? Yes, yes. Harry Enten, 538. That's it. Body slam Harry Enten. You will definitely shoot up a few points in the polls. And thus was Harry Enten assaulted by a red state Republican desperate to contradict a wave election. Harry was okay physically, but the true indignity was that the body slam happened so late it was not picked up in any of the polling. Gianforte was probably going to win anyway. It's Montana. Now here's a Washington Post headline. Gianforte's victory after assaulting reporter reflects rising tribalism in American politics. Or does it reflect steady republicanism in Montana politics? I know there's this idea that this uh, body slam is Trump-aided, but maybe it just means one candidate acting nuts and then his campaign lying about it, and it just didn't upend the election. Now, you probably noticed this too, but in my Twitter feed, there were lots of examples of conservatives saying dumb crap to get attention or excusing the behavior. But there are hundreds of Republican pundits out there. I'm sure the mainstream of Republicanism actually thought that this was bad. So to confirm this, to make this point, I honestly wish to make this point. I went to Fox News, the repository of Republicanism in America, and this interview was literally the first thing I saw. The guest was Bill Bennett, former Secretary of Education and professional moral arbiter. Well, I know a little bit about moral theory. I wrote a book called The Book of Virtues. Uh, but I, I, I got to tell you, I'm astounded by the fact that it's blamed on Trump. So, so Trump, sort of Jedi-like from Europe, can levitate this reporter off the ground and slam him that it's, uh, it's Donald Trump's fault. Okay, this was the debate we were talking about. Did Trump set the tone of incivility, especially towards the press, that enabled these conditions? It seems hard to prove, but also wrong to discount, and I think Bennett is making a fair point. That it's not Donald Trump's fault. It's clearly the fault of the transgressor. And that is called personal responsibility, and that is in keeping with conservative values. Right, Bill? The reporter uh, jumped in on the guy. 
Oh, it was the reporter's fault for asking Gianforte about the CBO score of the Health Care Act. Not so virtuous, Bill. By the way, I think it's over because he handled it so well uh, at the uh, at the victory party, saying he was sorry, apologized personally uh, to the reporter. But let's remember, Montana is a physical culture. Montana is not a physical culture. Montana is a state with laws. Misdemeanor assault is one such law, and punishment for that crime is why this literally is not over. In America, even in the physical Montana part of America, a crime isn't over when a congressman apologizes, especially when he apologizes the day after the votes are counted, and by the way, lets the lie of his campaign blaming the victim stand. So that's Bill Bennett's virtue for you. The crime should be punished. Action should have consequences. Assault should be condemned. Oh, wait, there was an R next to the actor's name? Eh, never mind. Here's one of his Fox and Friends interlocutors calling Bennett to account for his analysis. Oh, but Bill, by the way, yeah, I interviewed scale. you. I know you're a physical guy because you were a football player. You played football, so you're a physical guy. I thought maybe he was going to go with the uh, you're the victim of brain trauma angle. He did play football, by the way. According to a Chicago Tribune article, Bill Bennett played football at Williams College, though his nickname, The Ram, didn't come from the field, but from an incident where he put his head through a door after his date had locked him out. And there's the virtuous Bill Bennett for you. The people of Montana do not necessarily endorse such tactics, no matter how physically cultured they may be. I reject that most people, in fact, even the vast majority of Montanans who voted for Gianforte, think that body slamming a reporter is an okay thing to do. I think that, but I have no real proof of that. I really have no idea what the majority of Montanans think, because the majority of Montanans didn't vote. And this is a point I made after that special election in Georgia, where John Ossoff garnered 48% of the vote. Both of those elections were the focus, wait, way beyond the focus, were the obsession of national media. It seemed for a time as if those events were dominating all of our conversation, you know, because, well, we wanted to see who these two people going to Congress are, but also their divination powers. What would these races mean? Well, here's the stats from Montana. Registered voters in the state, the state is a little over a million people, registered voters, 700,000, total turnout, 379,000. That, by the way, for a special election is not bad. It's pretty good, 54%. But for an event of this importance, the importance it was given, but also the importance it intrinsically has, it's low. It's really low. As a baseline, look at the 2016 election, which took place on a regular old election day with a presidential election, of course, going on. 507,000 people voted in that election. So turnout was down by 125,000 with the world watching. And while the world watched Montana, Montanans were maybe watching pro wrestling. On the show today, I interview Chris Hayes, MSNBC host. He's written a book called A Colony in a Nation about crime and punishment and over-incarceration. That phrase, as we'll hear in a second, comes from a speech that Richard Nixon gave in 1968. And I was looking at that speech, and that's what I want to talk to you about in my spiel. But first, here's me with Chris Hayes.
Tonight, I see the face of a child. He lives in a great city. He is black or he is white. He is Mexican, Italian, Polish. None of that matters. What matters is he's an American child. That was Richard Nixon at the 1968 Republican National Convention. He sounds almost like Don DeLillo. The child is in that great city. The child in that great city is more important than any politician's promise. But elsewhere in the speech, he has this line. And by the way, all that stuff in the speech just goes to show that even a monster with a great speechwriter can achieve moments of eloquence. So here's the other line in that speech. Black Americans, no more than white Americans, they do not want more government programs which perpetuate dependency. They don't want to be a colony in a nation. And Colony in a Nation is the title of Chris Hayes' new book about over-policing and the relationship that white and black America has with its police. Hello, Chris. Great to be here, Mike. I'm a big fan. Yes, we have. Uh, we, we mutually are fans of each other. And I have this book and your last book. I guess Co- Colony in a Nation is a good punchy headline. But what's the what's the hitherto line in the declaration that uh, is also he, really good? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's Thomas Jefferson talking about in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson's listing his complaints about against the king. And we sort of know a lot of them. But one of them is uh, about the king. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Yeah. Which is basically, as I write in the book, like it's a line about the cops, like the officers, like officer literally as in Mr. Officer, as in law enforcement officer. In this case, it's customs officers. But right there in the Declaration of Independence, hiding in plain sight. A, a complaint about policing from from the original revolutionary forefather. But I, I like the idea of quoting Jefferson because everyone can appropriate Jefferson where there's an irony to quoting Nixon because he set in motion. I mean, war on drugs, he invented that and he set in motion. Well, I mean, you go back, you go back to the colonies, but he set in motion so much of the police state that we see today. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the key thing I think to understand about Nixon and one of the core arguments of the book is that the policies the policies of mass incarceration and policing and the war on drugs and all that stuff are results, are symptoms of the cause of the politics of it. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's like what Nixon's really responsible for is catalyzing and distilling and making as potent as possible the politics of law and order. And it's those politics that drive then all of the sort of results we see that create, you know, the largest, most incarcerated society in the world, et cetera. Um, but but he really kind of zeroes in on a way of talking about order, law yeah. and order, that becomes essentially a bipartisan um, rhetorical framework for 40 years. And it's important to note that not only bipartisan, but it goes across racial lines. And in the era when the idea of super predators gained purchase, as you know, the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus signed on to the 1994 crime bill. And there were some but not many black leaders saying, yes, we need order because, of course, people need order. Yeah. And and there's a great book I would recommend to people right now called Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman, which um, actually this A Colony Nation and Locking Up Our Own were reviewed together in The Times. I mean, people should read that book because there's a lot of complexity yeah. to that reaction. But yes, there's two things happening there. One is that, look, no one wants to be the victim of crime. Like, they, you know, they, let, let's start at the basic universal level of human experience. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. We don't want to be the victim of crime. We neither want to be the victim of crime nor suspected of committing a crime nor have anyone we love or know be either the victim or the perpetrator or a suspect. Like we generally, all of us across racial socioeconomic lines don't want to be uh, enmeshed in that. Right? Yeah. And it's true that in the periods, particularly the late 80s and 90s, uh, if you go back and you read some of the things that the mayors of Atlanta, mayor of Detroit, mayor of Washington, D.C., Marion Barry uh, are saying about the drug problem, you know, they are ringing this this alarm. Now, 
the one sort of coda I put to that about the Congressional Black Caucus is the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus voted for that crime bill, but a big chunk of it voted against it, which was more than almost ever anyone else, right? It yes. was <laughs> that bill was sort of unanimously very popular. And there's this there's, there's this process that Foreman describes and other sociologists and historians have described about this kind of black community saying, we have all these problems and we need the following five solutions, more police, more jobs, more investment infrastructure, you know, et cetera. And the state legislator being like, all right, more police. Yeah, more police. And by <laughs> the way, and by the way, they'll mostly be white. And by the way, that'll yeah. be a jobs program for the guys in Nassau County who never who live outside lived. the yeah. city. Exactly. exactly. So so there's this really complicated way in which uh, the, you know, the, the, the sort of those politics get turned to policy. But I, to get back to the original point, it's like fear and the politics of fear has all sorts of different ways that it sort of bubbles up through an electorate black white you know across racial lines but it it has effects no matter where you no matter where you find it do you think how hardwired do you think it is because i do see a change in the when actual crime rates fall it's not as if the hardwiring fear doesn't change it's still there to some extent but as both of us are new yorkers and we live through the decline in crime in new york and the conversation around crime in new york crime in new york with our very liberal mayor and maybe closing down rikers island is a lot different than it was yeah. in 1994 when it was a shooting gallery it, you know it makes a big difference i mean you know 1992, you got 2,300 murders in New York City around there. Last year, you had about 350, I believe. Um, that's just an enormous difference. So, yes, the actual conditions yeah. do matter. New York is is as safe on average. I think the homicide rate is like 3.8 per 100,000. That's New York's rate, and that's America's rate. Right. We're pretty much as safe as America. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing about all this, of course, is that violence and crime is massively unequally distributed. Um, you know, you've got crime rates in certain cities in Chicago that are, you know, less than one per 100,000, other places where they're like 900 per 100,000. So, yeah, yeah. so I mean, just crazy disparities, right, uh, uh, of this. It does matter a lot what's happening on the ground. What's been interesting to me to see is that, that the, the sort of politics of fear and the way in which white fear expresses itself through an electorate and through a citizenry mutates over time and doesn't go away, right? So in some ways, I think a lot of the object of that that you and I experienced in New York City when crime was really high has stayed there. And you see it about the fight over stop and frisk and and, and de Blasio. But you also see it mutate towards terrorism and Muslims. You see it mutate towards, right now, immigrants and immigration, right? So, you know, the the, the idea that Donald Trump went around the country and I watched him in rally after rally, you know, sitting at my desk, we would have the live feed every day, right? And he's in Erie, Pennsylvania, and he's in, you know, in southeastern Ohio, he's in Wisconsin, he's talking about the border wall, and people are just going crazy. And it's like, why do you care? Yeah. <laughs> like, like you're yeah. in Kenosha, dude. Yeah. Like, it's a, he's what, in New is Hampshire. It, what is it to you? He's in New Hampshire talking about the right. border, and you're like, wait, Canada? Right. No, exactly. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. So, you know, the... What what's remarkable to me is how potent and driving that force is, how yeah. it finds it sort of takes different objects over time. But you're right. And I would agree the material conditions matter, you know, and, and in some ways, I think if you look at a state like New York, which is a pretty good example, it has its prison population is on the decline. It, it has started to move in directions. It still has a really long way to go. There's still tremendous injustice in the system. But empirically, like it started to move in the right direction. And if crime were were at the rates that we saw in the past, I think that's basically impossible. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So the the one one sort of facilitates the other, right? So if the problem is over policing, I agree. First of all, 
uh, how could you not agree with b- bad policing should be stamped out? Things like, I understand uh, police unions will argue with body cameras, but they're coming and they'll do something. I don't know how right. much. They're not a panacea. If the problem's over policing for us in New York City, yeah, that's a problem. But when you do your town halls in the really bad parts of Chicago, do they agree that over policing is the problem? Do they want less police? One great way to think about it is that poor communities, particularly black communities, communities of color, are simultaneously under and over policed. Yeah. Jill Leovi's got a great book on this called Ghetto Side, which is about LA homicide detectives. And what she sort of zeroes in on, I quote her in the book, is that we have a system that's sort of policing as like a bully that will stop and frisk people for taillights being out, right? They're, they're very tough on that, but actually has a really hard time solving murders, is 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 sort of reduced to cowardice in right. the face of murder. And like you, you, when you went to Chicago, they all knew the clearance rate. Dude, that was – I'm so <laughs> glad that you noticed that because that was such an incredible moment to me to tell you how locked in – I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, yeah. that's a community that's in the midst of this incredible – disruption, trauma, and violence. But they knew the clearance rate. And to them, that is a sign that the police aren't actually doing their job. That, to me, was such a great um, indicator of the fact that the community understands and feels that they are both under and over-policed in certain ways. That, And the, the, the thesis of Jill Leovi's book is that when you don't, you know, when you have declining clearance rates, and one of the crazy things about this period of time from 1992 to 2014, roughly, when crime declines, is that Clearance rates, at the same time crime is declining, clearance rates going down in a lot of these cities. Hmm. Now, part of that has to do with a, a, a shift in emphasis from preventing, from solving crimes to preventing them, right? Part of the idea of broken windows, part of the idea of order maintenance is the job of the police is sort of solve, is stop crime from happening rather than solve the crimes that have happened. But you do have these declining clearance rates in places like Baltimore and Chicago, particularly clearance rates are, you know, they're 40, 45 percent, which means the majority of murderers are getting away with murder. Yeah. And, you know, Leovi makes this very simple point, and I think it's profound and, and applicable, which is that, like anything, like if you, if murderers get away with murder, yeah. right, there will be more murder, particularly because people are going to react. If you kill my cousin and the state is providing no recompense and no justice, then I'm going to come after you. <laughs> and and that's not that is a completely universal human truth in any society yeah. anywhere where the state doesn't have monopoly on violence, where it doesn't provide reliable justice, you are of course going to get vendetta and feud and violence in in any situation. Right. Now you mentioned Oh, and I would also add to that, and there's the snowball effect, I would say, of once you see the police is ineffective, you don't cooperate with policing. What's the point? So yeah. there's like, you know, and not only that in a place like Chicago, not not only and it is could that get case, you killed. Exactly. It could yeah. get you killed. And not only can it get you killed. I mean, it's not even just that it could get you killed. It's that police, the sort of there are so many examples of Chicago police. And obviously don't want to overgeneralize. There are, of course, many incredibly good, dignified, brave and noble cops in Chicago. But the department as an institution you know, in the patterns and practices report, you've got examples of teenagers being picked up for interrogation by Chicago police. And when they don't give the cops the information they want, they are then taken to a rival gang's territory and dropped off alone. With the uh, the cops essentially facilitating violence against a teenager. Like, if those are the people that you're supposed to go to and trust, yeah. <laughs> to talk to, I mean, you'd be out of your mind. So, you grew up in the Bronx, uh, 
for a time it was Riverdale. That's called the Bronx with an asterisk. Yeah, I'll yeah, give you yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Or Elliot Spitzer used to always do that thing. I'm from the Bronx. Dude, yeah. you're from Riverdale. Yeah, yeah, we know yeah. what that means. But okay, so you grew up in the Bronx. You grew up, uh, you were born in the late 70s. You uh, you witnessed the crack epidemic. People would say to you, cross the street when you see this type of kid. Was broken windows a bad idea to try? Uh, no. I don't think it was a bad idea to try. I think it was a complicated idea. I think there was I think there were that that, that broken windows had contained within it both sort of completely normal and and even noble impulses mm-hmm. and really dark and dangerous ones, right? So so like the idea of again, to get back to this idea like do people generally want to see folks urinating on the sidewalk? And the answer is like no, not really. Like yeah. that's like um the squeegee men sucked. Right. They really yeah. sucked. Like so there's there's a certain kind of like but was that essentially – I mean the problem with it, right, is that – and if you go back to the original article, the idea that like police is enforcing community norms is one thing. And actually, weirdly, the original Broken Windows articles kind of is actually a call for community policing as we understand yeah. it now. It's yeah. a great irony is that the article is based on a study that required cops to get out of their squad cars yeah. and walk the beat, which is – a hallmark of what we call now community policing. Like James Q. Wilson, by the way, he wrote the textbook of my AP government class. Yeah, He's I like mean, this very moderate guy. Totally. And, and feeling bu- was more. And the bureaucracy yeah. book is a is a sort of legendary, yeah. uh, you know, canonical text on, on, on the sort of functioning of government. But the point being that there's a massive racial blind spot in that essay. <laughs> it's written by two white guys. And it's it's so massive as to be almost sort of malpractice, which is that the idea is, okay, if police are there to sort of enforce kind of consensus community norms, which are different in different places, uh, mm-hmm. illustrate in the book, like the area around a campus in a Big Ten school on a Saturday has very different norms of order than my neighborhood right now. If you tr- like, and and if you try to bring different norms into different places, things look crazy and wild and out of control. So you got to first acknowledge that there are different norms of order in different circumstances. That if the police are there as a sort of the community representative to enforce that norm, well, then how is that going to work when the cops are not from the community? Yeah. Right? I mean, and yeah. that ends up being, you know, the sort of key part of this whole thing is ultimately it's people from outside the neighborhood who are policing the neighborhood by and large. Cue Bunny Colvin giving his speech about the beer in the paper bag. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly the beer in the paper bag. And that's a great, that's a perfect example. Right. And it's true. You know, I mean, I, I write about this in the book and I, I still come back to it. You know, the first time that I, you know, I went to a, a college that didn't have a big kind of like um, big sports program traditions, right? Uh, the first time that I was I was in Madison, Wisconsin, for living there for six weeks, volunteering on the on the campaign in 04. and I got to see up close. It was the fall. I got to see, and they had a good team that year. I got to see like Big Ten college game day culture up close, <laughs> and it was shocking to me. It was genuinely shocking. I was like, I can't, I can't, kind of can't believe that all of this allows and everyone was kind of cool with it and but it was like there were people puking there were people peeing there were people in states of undress there's unbelievable literally broken windows literally Literally broken windows windows. people brawling like (laughs) all of it and you know i kept thinking like man if this was if something like this was happening on the south side of chicago or even worse if this was a bunch of black folks in downtown chicago engaging this behavior like yeah forget about it we saw a trendlet of on the right, especially Rand Paul and libertarians, but some others, 
talking about over incarceration and talk about over policing. Maybe the over policing libertarian police state got to them more. But there seemed to be a trend. If you had to draw yep, the graph, there totally. it was. We're going to get bipartisanship. Trump comes along and not accidentally, this is part of his message, seemed to appeal to that percentage of voters, blows it up. What do you make of, uh, was there really a trendlet? Was his- I think it was never, so So I'm glad you asked that question. So there's this whole, yeah, the Cato Institute, um, the Koch brothers putting money into this. You've got, even like just a f- uh, last week, I think the National Review, to their credit, ran an uh, editorial against the Jeff Sessions new uh, sentencing memo that yeah. he, that he uh, issued, uh, you know, urging prosecutors to seek the, seek the statutory maximum. So here's the problem. The problem is that the the sort of think tank right, the magazine and think tank right, evolved to come to see mass incarceration through the lens of big government and the state, right? Which I think is appropriate and correct that huge amounts of budgets were going into this, that the prisons union, prison workers unions were sort of obstacles to reform, that it was an incredible incursion of the government into freedom and liberty, which yes. it is. Yes. But the problem is that that was never there, there's a sort of self delusion I think that happens among the think tank and magazine right, which is that like conservatism is about this ideological battle over what should be how big the state should be, and I just don't think that's what it is at all at the base level. <laughs> it's about order and fear and yeah. about you know uh, and about tradition and about tribe and all these things well what one one idea puts them out of a job and one idea keeps right. them in so a job. Yeah. so to me it was always like a little I always felt like it was a grass tops kind of. Gotcha. You know, a, a astroturf sort of thing mm-hmm. that, that there was no real grassroots support for it. But I wonder, did regular people, they definitely hearken to his message of Chicago's a mess, but they don't live in inner city Chicago. Did they actually fear No, crime? it was just a way of, it was, yeah. to me, that was all a coded way of saying, uh, the, the talking about, harping about Chicago's a mess and that you walk down the street, you get shot to a room full of white people. Is like railing against political correctness yeah, to me. Yeah, that yeah. that that had this sort of thing of he's saying the unsayable. What about black on black crime? Which is yeah. these sort of tropes. And of, he's shaming Obama with that. How many exactly, steps do you actually have to go through to get exactly, that? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So to me, it was like that wasn't the stuff that was actually more actually about law and order in the traditional sense. Wasn't the stuff on crime, which to me was about him kind of taking a shot at political correctness. Mm-hmm. Was a huge part of his appeal. It was the border stuff and the ISIS stuff. I mean, that's the stuff where. People do have this, I think, more fear of yeah. terrorist attacks. They do have fear that, like, the border is being overrun. Yeah. And that fear, particularly on the border, is like this neurotic fear that's not dissimilar from the broken windows fear, that things are out of control and, and disordered and that you need, like, a big physical wall to order it. Um, do you think after Trump is gone, be it in three and a half years or seven and a half years or two and a half weeks, do all his policies that he's done – uh, to thwart progress on exactly what you're talking about in Colony and a Nation. The, the progress we've had, you know, police body cameras and just some acknowledgement that we are over-incarcerated. Do they evaporate and we go back to having progress or has he set it back and we've, we'll take years just to get to the place where we were in 2015, there, 2016? You know, there's real damage he can do, but I think that one of the the weird sort of silver lining here is that policing and mass incarceration are almost entirely a local phenomenon. They're driven by county elections, county sheriffs, uh, county DAs, city and municipality mayors, city councils. All of that continues independent in some ways of what the Department of Justice does. And the Department of Justice can send messages and do certain things, and they can actually have tangible, terrible impacts on people's lives. I don't want to 
you know, undercount that. But the vast majority of the system is a local system. And, you know, we just saw in Philadelphia this fascinating district attorney primary on the Democratic side where this very lefty reformist mm-hmm. candidate won. Guy's never prosecuted anyone. Yeah. He's, he's the guy that he's the guy that shows up to bail out protesters, right? Yeah. After they're arrested. And, and Orlando and Houston and and, Baltimore. and Cook County a little bit mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. so you've got a situation where it's still in the local hands, and I think the appetite at the local level and the, the the attitudes are changing at the local level. And so I think a lot of it, a lot of progress can be made independent of, of what's happening in the White House. All right, Chris, I'll let you get out of here because I know at five o'clock some other gigantic news item will drop threatening the republic, which would have been, you know, the biggest story in the last 10 years, except it happens every day. Chris Hayes, the Emmy Award winning host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, and he's the author of A Colony in a Nation. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. So there you heard Chris talking about colony and a nation, that phrase, which, as we mentioned, came from Richard Nixon's 1968 Republican National Convention speech. Out of curiosity, also, maybe because I let my CISO account lapse, I read and I watched Nixon's speech. Nixon's been in the news a lot lately because, you know, firing officials to thwart investigations, possible impeachment, thin-skinnedness, collusion, and masterful statecraft on the international level. Well, maybe not that part. Nixon went to China. Trump served the Chinese president the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake ever. But as much as Nixon is like Trump and that the times of Nixon are a bit like today, he's also different. Nixon, for one, was smart genuinely smart. And while Nixon did promulgate the war on drugs and skillfully play on racial fears, he skillfully played on racial fears. His message was dog whistle, not dog fart. But listen to Nixon in the 68 convention speech, at least trying to elevate and paint a picture. It is not a litany of American carnage. Dick Nixon was, I believe, in 1968, trading on themes of hope. That child, in that great city, is more important than any politician's promise. He is America. He is a poet. He's a scientist. He's a great teacher. He's a proud craftsman. He's everything we ever hoped to be and everything we can't dare to dream to be. Now, there are a lot of parts of this speech that sound Trumpian. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shotters, the non-demonstrators, They're not racist or sick. They're not guilty of the crime that plagues the land. They are black and they're white. They're native born and foreign born. They're young and they're old. They work in America's factories. But though there were many of those kinds of clauses, there were also, right attached to them, lines that Trump would never say. They serve in government. Another two sentences to juxtapose, one that could come out of Trump's mouth. And I say the time has come for other nations in the free world to bear their fair share of the burden of defending peace and freedom around this world. And one that couldn't. What I call for is not a new isolationism. It is a new internationalism. Trumpian. So let us have order in America. Non-Trumpian. Not the order that suppresses dissent and discourages change, but the order which guarantees the right to dissent and provides the basis for peaceful change. Now, if the overall effect upon hearing these is for you to say, wow, nothing's changed. He's talking about order and respect and forgotten Americans. And in parts I haven't played, a war that's still dragging on. Know this, there are lots of parts of the speech 
that would just seem weird to today's ears. He's talking about issues that just don't seem like issues. I pledge to you that our new attorney general will be directed by the president of the United States to launch a war against organized crime in this country. Organized crime? So dire the president discussed it? And listen from this, from the Republican president. I see a day when we can look back on massive breakthroughs in solving the problems of slums and pollution and traffic, which are choking our cities to death. Traffic, pollution. We still have pollution. We still have global warming. But smog, acid rain, contaminated lakes and rivers, they dominated the national consciousness in 1968. And they have really been much improved since Nixon. And also, let's give him credit, he invented the EPA. They've been much improved because of Nixon. The speech ends with Nixon imagining a young child dreaming of tomorrow, then ties it to a young boy in California hearing a train whistle. And Nixon, it turns out, was that boy. This, by the way, was a milestone in presidential speeches. It was the first time a candidate wove biography and not just policy into his convention. Nixon didn't deliver it with great style. And there were definitely elements of dishonesty in there. But to a large degree, he did his job. And that could probably be said for his tenure as well. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Brube is suggesting we consider putting A.O. Scott in a figure four leg lock. Mary Wilson, just producer, recalls that back in the day, no one would dare body slam Jack Germond. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has this announcement. Whoever tosses Stevens keep more than 15 feet wins a prize. Hey, we're off for a week tomorrow. Well, I'm off. You're not. Don't be off. Because here, hosting the show will be Slate's Aisha Harris, Leon Nafak, and Zoe Chase of This American Life, all sitting in this seat, doing their own Chasian, Harrisian, Harassian? Nafakian way. So please listen. The gist. I do not trust William Bennett as far as I could throw him. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.